Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, let's see, you get a few announcements today. I want to mention the Papers We Love organization. We've mentioned this on the show before. It's a super cool organization. Um, basically, the idea is uh, a paper, uh, an academic paper of some sort, is presented every month um, at various locations around the world. There are chapters in everywhere from Amsterdam to Winnipeg, uh, Reykjavik, San Francisco, St. Louis, all sorts of places like that. There's a chapter here in Washington, D.C. where I live, and I've been to a few, and it's, it's super cool um, just to meet people. Uh, not closure specific, um, but I think um, definitely stuff of interest to, to you if you're interested in the sort of things we talk about on the show. So check that out. In particular, coming up, there are a couple of interesting uh, sessions I want to mention. There's one in Chicago. Uh, they'll be talking about the scale uh, SWIM, which is a scalable group membership protocol. Um, that's the 22nd of July, 2015. Uh, the same day in Montreal, efficient and general on-stack replacement for aggressive program specialization, which is a mouthful, but looks pretty interesting. And then in Santa Monica, California, the 29th of July, uh, Bill Berry on uh, hints for computer system design. That's just really a sampling. You should go to paperswelove.org and look to see if there's a chapter in your area there's quite a few locations, so there might well be. And if there's not, you can also check there and see about starting one. It's just a really neat idea. It's sort of a almost a book club for academic papers type of thing. Very cool stuff. Want to mention as well the Tri-Closure Meetup, which will be held Thursday, July 30th. Again, we're talking the year 2015 at Cognitech headquarters in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Daniel Higginbotham will be speaking about concurrency. Uh, you can look for Tri-Closure on Meetup. And I think the last thing I'll mention today is the Closure Conj call for proposals is open. The call for proposals ends August 14th. So if you have an idea for a talk that you'd like to do, and we would love to have your idea for a talk, you should send that in. You can go to closure-conj.org to do that. Um, and we'll have answers out on the speakers to you by September 4th. The conference, of course, is November 16th through the 18th. This year it's being held in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, here on the east coast of the U.S. And we're all very, very excited. Um, you should definitely go and submit a talk. A really significant portion of the attendees at last year's Closure Conj were first-time attendees. So don't feel like you have to have been to, you know, all of the conges or having have done Closure for 23 years or anything like that. We definitely want to hear from everybody that has uh, something to say about Closure. So um, go ahead and do that. I think that's my list for this time around, so we'll go on to episode 83 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, June 12th in 2015, and this is the Cognicast. And today we have with us uh, a classmate of mine, actually, uh, Mike Fikes, a Closure developer who's here to talk about many interesting things. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, Craig. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, we were actually at, we figured out, we met later, we, but we figured out um, when we ran into each other at a, at a user group uh, around here in Northern Virginia, where we both live, that uh, 
you and I had been at MIT at the same time, although uh, I don't think we ever actually interacted, at, at yeah. least not that we remember. We probably passed each other in the infinite corridor many times. And... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Looking down at our feet and walking quickly, as is the custom. Yeah. So anyway, but today, <laughs> today we don't <laughs> want to talk about MIT. Today we want to talk about other things. I guess we could, but I suspect we won't get there. Um, but before we do any of that, of course, we're going to talk about the thing I warned you of, the, the tradition we have here at the beginning, where we ask our uh, guests to relate some experience of art that they've had that uh, they just want to share that they think is cool or is inspiring or whatever, uh, you know, makes sense to you. So what do you got for us? Yeah, cool. So this, to me, this one's like an arts and crafts kind of thing that my family's been getting into. And it's called felting. And it's kind of mechanically interesting because you take like a, uh, you take a wad of wool, if you will. And there's a special tool that looks like a needle with little uh, barbs on it. And you kind of push the wool into itself so that the fibers kind of attach to themselves. And you can imagine doing this over and over and over again. And you can build up kind of a shape. And uh, you, can, you can build like little tiny stuffed animals. And you can, uh, they actually are quite durable, surprisingly, uh, based on you know, them just being made out of wool. And if you mix different colors, you can you know, kind of add you know, like you can imagine making a, a rabbit with uh, maybe little black dots for eyes or maybe different shadings for a fur. Huh. So, so my, 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 wife, my wife and daughter and son have been doing this. And it's, to me, kind of interesting that you can actually make something out of that. They, they saw this at a conference a while ago, and they just decided to start doing it. So. Was this a uh, technical conference? or There was one of those uh, downtown D.C. sort of uh, science things that they saw someone doing this at. Oh, was this I don't the remember. Science and Engineering Festival? Yeah, that one. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's really cool. And so this is funny because, you know, our daughters are the same age. Your daughter, we've actually brought them at the same time to the closure uh, meetups that we both attend. And yeah. your daughter was responsible for getting my daughter into um, Minecraft in a big oh. way. So that's very, very They were great. supposed to do Scratch at the time, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, we've talked about this before I, on the show. Uh, I think, for me at least, having a 10-year-old, I am... I am my main objective at this point is to make computers fun yeah. um, and and anything it, it, but still something where they're making something you know not simply a, a an entertainment machine um, and so I was yeah. perfectly happy to have her get into Minecraft because I think that there's an element of construction there's with the redstone there's an element of of programming and that can bridge her through and keep computers as this as this thing that you can use to create in a fun way until we get to a point where for her it's more appropriate to start taking on, you know, concepts of abstraction and other things that are really necessary to doing programming at the more um, serious level. Yeah, my, my son, um, he's, he's 12, and he uh, wants to build Minecraft mods. And he just wants to dive right in. And it's hard to explain to him that, you know, you, gotta, you have to first learn Java, you know, and it's a, it's a big undertaking. And it's that kind of, you know, you want instant gratification when you're at that age. You want to be able to code something up and see the result. And so for them, Scratch, I think, is more uh, filling that role rather than trying to actually build Minecraft mods. That's way too hard right now for them. Yeah, I said we were going to talk about MIT, but I will, I will pitch something that I can't remember if I've mentioned to you before or not, but I will certainly mention it to all of the uh, programmer parents out there. Um, uh, and that's MIT App Inventor. Uh, have you seen this? I don't think so, no. Uh, it's really cool. Um, so it's similar to Scratch, right? In that there's a, a visual programming language with, you know, uh, programming Blocks. elements. That, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. They click together. And so, you know, you get, you get better feedback of what's legal syntax in, in essence. 
Yeah, yeah. But the the difference between uh, MIT App Inventor and um, some like Scratch is that uh, MIT App Inventor it, its output is a um, Android app. Ah, yes. Yes, um, this is the thing that your daughter made. Yeah. That's right. And yep. so you have mm-hmm. access to the phone. And so unlike yep. with Scratch, which is cool and it's great, mm-hmm. you know, you have – but you have a camera, an accelerometer. She made use of some of the speech synthesis uh, capabilities. And I I mean, oh, my God. you want, it, it, my, my two daughters who are 7 and 10, you know, the older one wrote this app that all it is it, – it's cool. I mean, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to minimize it, but it's a text box with a button. And when you click the button, it sends whatever you typed into the text box to the speech synthesis engine, and your phone says it. And they must have played with that thing for like two hours, just getting it to say stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but it has—it actually is um, quite rich. There's quite a few things, and uh, there's a few things about it I like about Scratch. Although I suspect, given some yeah. of the things that we kicked around, that you are probably not um, on Android as much as you are on iOS. Is that correct? That's, that's true. Yeah, my, my focus has been iOS. But I, I have made an Android app, so I kind of know what it means to do that. Yeah. Uh, um, and so, close, and so well, sorry, uh, iOS is actually one of the things that I want to make sure we talk about today. But uh, before we go there, um, I think mm-hmm. there's kind of a story based on talking to you that kind of leads up to the iOS-related thing. Um, and I think... It, I think Based on what you were telling me, I, I think it's reasonable to start with how you came to closure. Is that is that a fair yeah, so jumping in point? I, I think uh, per- perhaps my story is similar to others where uh, going back like 10 years ago, I was programming in Java and I had started doing multi-threaded Java for the first time. And uh, I had no clue what functional programming was back then. Uh, I had never even heard of it. Uh, but then you start to read things and you learn that making immutable classes is helpful. You, when you're writing unit tests, you find that uh, if you have pure functions, they're easier to test than you know if you have mocks of other things. So I had started getting exposed to what functional programming was way back then. Uh, I don't even think Clojure existed like in 2005 or 2004. Mm, not really, no. It was came, kind of came to light around 2007 or eight. And one, one thing I do remember about Clojure way back then was, you know, if you have an immutable object, uh, you can imagine trying to then say, oh, what if I want to make a graph of immutable objects? And that's cool. You're like happy it's all immutable, goodness. But then you're like, well, what if I want to take one node off that graph and put another node on? You know, if you're trying to do that in Java and you're just trying to code, that becomes very difficult to do. And I remember way back then thinking, Running into, I remember running into Clojure thinking, ah, they had somehow solved this, this problem of having a large immutable graph and changing it. And I, I, at the time, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't familiar with the data structures being used, but I, I strongly remember that, hey, they had solved this problem somehow. So, so back then, I had, uh, you know, I, I did, I think, the typical thing I learned, I uh, started learning Scala because that's kind of a natural evolution from Java. And then I went hardcore and started trying to learn Haskell and (laughs) dug deep into that stuff. And then I just kind of was never really able to use it at work. You know, that's it's kind of hard to convince a company, hey, let's switch to Haskell or let's switch to Scala. But I, you know, tried to apply the ideas uh, and just kind of led my programming life that way until fairly recently when I, I kind of uh, through my own. Uh, efforts in making iOS apps, I, I finally had the opportunity where I said, you know, I'm making this thing for myself now. I don't, need to, I don't need to convince another team to do it. I can choose whatever language I want. And for some reason, 
uh, I was looking at Clojure and I'm like, you know, I think I could program in this language. You know, it, it, it looks nice and simple. So I started learning it at least first. And that was about a year ago. So the, the, the very first thing I did was I took, uh, I had an iOS app at the time that had a backend server uh, that was running, you know, like a REST server in Java. And I took it and as an exercise converted that, that code base to Clojure and kind of learned Clojure that way. And the, the interesting thing about that one was uh, it was, uh, for that particular server, it would take requests and turn around and make back-end requests to other systems that would take a while to respond. So it would hold the thread while it's doing that, right? So that, that was an opportunity for me to learn what this whole core async thing was about. And uh, I, I kind of tried to learn that at the same time and built that server that way. I'm curious. I, I assume that was a Ring application. Yes, it was Ring. And um, I don't remember the details, but I did something funky with HTTP kit to try to make it all async. I hooked it up to Nginx. So I, I think the, if I remember right, Ring is really just uh, the spec of how you handle the request, right? Correct, but yeah. I, but I, I remember having to do something weird there to, to kind of make the whole thing be async all the way through yeah, I'm not, I'm not too surprised to hear that. I mean, the ring is a functional abstraction, right? The idea that you handle a request as a function um, and function calls obviously are inherently synchronous. So if you use that model, then going asynchronous becomes difficult. The reason, I'm, the reason I asked you is I just was curious if you've um, checked out Pedestal, which is a, you know, a library that we here at Cognitive Tech developed that one of the things it does is it provides a, a pretty good, in my opinion, story for async web handling where you don't have to hold a thread, for instance? No, I think, uh, I think Pedestal may have been coming out at the time. You know, it was, may, may have been being developed right when I was doing this. Mm -hmm, sure. So I heard about it, and I have not, I have not looked into it. Okay, cool. Yeah. We'll, talk, we'll talk about You and I will talk about that perhaps at a user group sometime, but I'm curious yeah. to hear more of your story. So, so that was... Uh, so, so really my main goal was to build iOS apps, and that first foray into closure for me was really on the server side. Uh, but then I, I wanted to figure out how do you, how do you build an iOS app using closure? And that's uh, still a, a pretty much an unanswered question that really, or at least there's different, there's multiple answers and there's no real silver bullet that answers how you do that. I'm, I'm curious, mm -hmm. um, was the reason that you wanted to answer that question just like curiosity or was it that you had such a good experience working with Clojure on the server that you're like, I want this everywhere or some combination. Yeah, it was, more, it was more that, that I really like this language and I really wanted to just use it everywhere, even if it meant uh, going through some pain to get there. Um, uh, you know, Objective-C is fine, uh, but it can be, I guess one thing you could say is, is Clojure looks a little bit uh, less verbose. You know, you can... You can just map over some some function over a collection really you know mm -hmm. really succinctly, uh, and, and I, the main thing that if you to answer your question, I think it, that drives me towards that way is wanting to do something in a functional way. Mm. And then of course Swift came out right at the same time, so I had to debate in my mind whether or not to use Swift. And at the time, I was already kind of vested in Closure, so I was it it had already won me over. So. Uh, I think that kind of answers your question is why closure? It's because I like it. You okay. know? No, I was <laughs> curious. I, was, I don't think I was getting any advantage by using that to that language specifically to try to, to build an iOS app. Gotcha. Okay. 
So you said there were a bunch of options that, yeah, that, so that exist. Yeah, go ahead. So if you look out there, there's some... Um, Gal Dalber has a, a thing that will compile uh, Objective-C down to native code. I'm sorry, compile Clojure down to Objective-C and ultimately native code. Uh, there's, uh, there's Nathan Sorensen, Sorensen's uh, project. He, he goes to Scheme first and then uh, uses some Gambit library to, to compile it down to native code. So there's, there's various approaches to trying to, to build a native iOS app using Clojure. And I guess you would, you would probably argue that you'd want to do that for performance reasons. Uh, and and I, I was digging around, and ultimately I ran across uh, a Stack Overflow uh, response from David Nolan suggesting use uh, JavaScript core with ClojureScript. And uh, I thought about it. I'm like, you know, that, that actually could probably work for what I wanted to do because I wasn't really too worried about performance. And uh, it, to me, it, it made a lot of sense because then I would be using kind of a, a mainstream language or a mainstream implementation of Clojure that has, you know, a community supporting it. Uh, so I felt more comfortable going with the, the Clojure script route. So, okay. So because yeah. the, you were saying the, you talked about the other uh, transpilers, whatever yeah, we call yeah. them these days. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're a, a dialect or a fork or, I mean, they're not mainstream Clojure somehow. Yeah, I think uh, if you look at it, they're they're all they all have that uh, that characteristic where they don't have a large community behind them. And th that's there's probably nothing wrong with any of these approaches, but I, I felt more comfortable if I if I were to use ClojureScript because I know that there's a large community behind it. And then you mentioned JavaScript Core. I'm actually not familiar with what that okay. what that means. Yeah. So so if you imagine uh, Safari, the browser on iOS. Uh, it has a JavaScript engine in it, and that engine is JavaScript Core. And that, that JavaScript engine um, is available to uh, iOS developers as well. So if you want to, um, as a matter of fact, in iOS 7, Apple built kind of a, um, a, a special bridge from Objective-C to JavaScript Core to make it really easy to to develop that way to develop kind of hybrid apps where part of your app is objective c and part of it's uh in javascript mm -hmm. so so i think javascript core it may exist on android as well i'm, I'm not sure what what technology is used actually it is i know that it is uh, because that's actually one of the things that facebook is considering for react native on android is javascript core there as well hmm. um so so you can um you can build these native uh, slash JavaScript hybrid apps, if you will. And I think one of the main approaches to that, to that style is the Titanium and PhoneGap, all those various kind of approaches. They, they basically let you write your application code in JavaScript, and then they provide various libraries and, and tooling to make it easier to do that. And... Uh, Zachary Kim actually uh, he presented recently with uh, an approach that uses ClojureScript uh, targeting this Titanium environment, if you will, and that's a pretty compelling way to do it. So, so what I did though was I just wanted to keep things very simple, and uh, I I basically just wanted to write a thin layer, um, basically driving my my iOS native app, if you will, where kind of the orchestration. Part of it, like the higher level app, the application logic was just in ClojureScript, but the lower level things like the uh, 
the, the list views, the widgets, if you will, down at the iOS layer. I wanted all that to remain native um, just for performance reasons and also just to make it look like a normal native app. So what, what part of what Apple made available in iOS 7 is uh, this uh, interface called JS Export that if you take, uh, if you take one of your Objective-C objective classes and you uh, make it uh, implement that interface, and I don't think that interface has any methods defined on it, but if you just make it implement that, that interface, then your object becomes eligible for being uh, injected into JavaScript core. So that's, that's kind of the way I, I, I kind of took all my, my uh, view controllers, if you will, various, the implementation classes that you would normally have in, in an Objective-C app. I took those, I made them implement this interface, uh, added some methods. When you do that, you have to ha actually define a few methods that you want to actually be exposed to the JavaScript, and those methods kind of have uh, constraints on them that make sense where you, know, you, you need to deal with types that the JavaScript core engine can deal with. So from the higher level, what I, what, the big picture of what I did was I basically just added enough hooks to, to some classes on my iOS side so that I could then drive it from ClojureScript. And that was kind of my entry into building apps, uh, iOS apps using ClojureScript. Hmm. Keeping things very simple, if you will. So, the, I mean, this is, so you're, maybe, maybe this story goes elsewhere, but at this point in the story, it requires a sort of mixed mode of development where you, you ha still have to write Objective-C or I, I suppose maybe Swift, but you have to write something at that layer and then you also are working up at the closure script layer going. Definitely, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, you, you, to, do this, to do it this way, you kind of already have to know how to build an iOS app using Objective-C, so it doesn't get you away from that completely. You, you're, you're right. You have to delve down into the, into the Objective-C, especially when I was building this, I was kind of putting together my own framework, if you will, in order to let me do this. So <laughs> I think a lot, of the, a lot of the coding I did to do this was in the Objective-C side to, to make it all work out. But you were doing this, you were doing this for, I mean, on a, uh, a project that you had. I mean, if this wasn't just playing around, you actually were driven yep. by a yep. It ultimately a led to me, um, I ultimately shipped an app based on it. Um, yeah, so it was, it was very pragmatic, you know. <laughs> I wasn't just, uh, yeah, I was, it wasn't just like a little hobby that I was doing. It, I actually had a goal in the end, and I wanted to ship an app with it. Uh, so, so two questions. One is, what's the name of the app, and what does it do? Sure. Uh, the, the app is uh, Classroom Checkout. Um, and it, it's basically, uh, if you imagine uh, at school, uh, teachers will let their students take books out of their classroom. Uh, and a lot of times, those classrooms also have maybe an iPad sitting off on the side. So this app would let students uh, basically treat the, the teacher's uh, library, if you will, of books there as like a small library. And they can use this app to check out the books uh, by scanning them. Uh, mm -hmm. iPads have like a little camera. You basically point it at the ISBN on the back of the book and it kind of beeps. And it, it's, it's almost like being at the library where you say, okay, I, wanna, I can check out this book. And then when I, when I bring the books back, I scan them again to check them back in. Mm -hmm. So it, it's one of those kind of things that actually students tend to find as being kind of fun to do. Yeah, yeah um, I can well imagine. So that, that whole app is, uh, is, is pretty much uh, written in this way. And, and ultimately, uh, Brandon Bloom actually was on a podcast once. And he said, if, if you're going to do something, just put it out there. Don't worry about polishing it. I think he, he was arguing that if you... If you hold back and try to polish something before releasing it, uh, then you'll never release things, right? And I kind of am that way. I, I'm like, I don't want to put this thing out there. Because the, the, 
the stuff that I had built to do this was arguably reusable. But it was a mess, of course. I didn't want to just put a mess out there. And then I heard Brandon Bloom say that, and I'm like, you know, I'll just go ahead and put it out there. I'll clean it up a little bit and put it out there. And that's ultimately what, what is this Gobi thing that I put out there on GitHub. Cool. I, and I want to get to that yeah. in a second. Um, but, uh, but the other question I wanted to ask you, aside from what the app was, was would you do it that way again? Like, in other words, was it a good decision to split your development into those two categories and integrate like that? Yeah, so... Up until React Native came along, I was kind of faced with that very question, you know, like how, and, and I was, I had convinced myself that I would keep doing it that way. I would keep honing it until it was, until I had built enough of a, you know, enough of a reusable substrate so that it made it worthwhile to build new apps that way. But, but now that React Native is out and, and it promises this better way of doing things, the answer to your question is probably no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, do things that way. And, and, and part of the, the main reason behind saying that is not, not so much the, the difficulty of, of delving into Objective-C and you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's more that what you end up with if you do it that way is you kind of have this, this nice functional language that uh, is driving an imperative library underneath the UI kit library that you use to, to, to drive UI, uh, iOS apps. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the reason I wanted to do this was to, to do things in a functional way. And, uh, with, with Gobi, you can pretend to be functional down in the closure script part, you know, and like in the little, little, uh, algorithms writing in there, but the overall approach ends up being still very imperative. Uh, you still have, you know, lots of closure script code driving, uh, Making making mutable calls on on Objective C objects to to tell them to do this that and the other. My in my mind that that way works and it's fine. But uh, at the same time, I was I was kind of thinking uh, maybe there's some way to to make like a ohm like version of all this stuff that would you know that that could be more functional. And uh, in my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, that's way too much to do with you know trying to basically not rewrite the iOS layer, but, but it would add a whole lot of complexity to it to try to make it be very functional where you just, you know, do things kind of like the React way and the Ohm way. Uh, so I, but I was, I was reading about, at the time, prior to React Native coming out, I was reading about what Facebook had been doing. Uh, and they, they had an interesting story internally where they, you know, their, their apps were first, uh, I guess, web apps, and then they, at one point they decided to embrace mobile so they wrote a bunch of conventional mobile apps. And uh, after a while, I guess they, they started to feel the, the pain of certain kinds of bugs coming up in their apps that they really couldn't reproduce that were related to uh, lots of mutation. And uh, I think one example they had that was pretty good is if you, if you use the Facebook app and you, you uh, click on the like button on, on a certain thing that you saw, then it would cause uh, a counter to increase and perhaps it would need to re-render things and it would slightly offset the, the UI in a different way. And you'd end up with this, this, I guess, an avalanche of callbacks related to this change that the user had made in the app. And things being the way they are, with this avalanche of callbacks going through the app, you would end up with weird quirks, at, I guess, at times where things just didn't make sense. So what Facebook actually did internally uh, was they started building um, their own internal uh, libraries that were uh, 
or, or their own UI layer, if you will, that was very functional. Uh, it, and it, it smelled a lot like React in terms of the way it worked because you'd end up with these, the idea of these pure functions that, that uh, represent your, your UI where the pure functions are driven from your app state. Uh, so they, they were actually were building all this internally, and I think that's, that's actually what the current Facebook app is built on top of, is this almost this third way of doing things that they built that uh, is, is, is built on this, this functional layer. It's actually in, in this language called Objective C++. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's a great name. Yeah, yeah. If you think about it. And I, and I don't mean, well, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. That's an that's a interesting name. Go ahead. Yeah, so so I was. Um, you can go look. There's uh, Adam Ernst is, explains the stuff. He's he's from Facebook, and if you you read that stuff or you watch the videos, you're like, oh, this is this is good stuff. And all along, when I was looking at this stuff, I was hoping that they would open source it, because if they did, then I would use it. Um, and you know, I'm just like, ah, this this would be the way to really build iOS apps and and kind of the right way, I guess, for for some definition of right. And that. Back then, that was around, I think, near the end of last year that, that I was looking into this stuff. And then I think it was around January, React Native was announced. And I, I immediately thought, oh, wow, this must be that stuff that, that, they've, that they've been working on that they finally open sourced. But I think it actually wasn't. It was actually um, inspired by it. But, but strictly speaking, it was actually a different set of libraries that they were building inside of Facebook. So I, I'm sorry. I'm, so I'm a, a bit of a... Uh... Well, I work on the back end, and so I don't. I just don't spend as much time looking at the front end stuff. So, you need to explain to me ex- exactly what React Native is. I have kind of a dim understanding, but I, it'd be great to hear from someone who's spent more time looking at it to yeah, help me yeah. understand. So, and I don't even know if I can explain it myself because I haven't gone down to that level myself yet. But the way I understand it is, uh, if you have some state that represents your your app. Um, and you basically want to, you, you, you imagine that that state can be used to render a view in your app. And what, what then happens then is if you need to change that state, uh, you would end up with a theoretically a new view, you know, perhaps in the example, someone clicked on a, on a like button and it incremented a counter and perhaps changed the size of some UI element. Maybe it stretched or something like that. So uh, without something like React Native, what you would do is you would actually go find, you would have the little widget that represents that counter and you would change the text in it to be, you'd go from the number one to the number two or something like that. Uh, where, where if you back up and you, you talk about the React Native way of doing it, you basically just change your app state so that the counter, if you will, is now a new number inside your app state. And then you write a pure function that would render that app state that would theoretically have this number two sitting in the UI. And React Native takes care of doing that, that diffing algorithm that you may have heard of mm-hmm. to, to produce this new UI uh, that's consistent with a new app state. And, um, and so this is, this is all very much like React, what you're describing. Yes, exactly. Yep. That's, so, that's, yeah, that's probably a quicker way to explain it. It's, it's a native version of React. <laughs> okay, for, but yeah. for mobile devices or for, I mean, are they doing it yes. for lots of platforms? Or? They're, they're doing it for iOS uh, and Android. That's, okay. So iOS is available now. It's, it's, I don't know if they would call it beta. It's, it's not version 1.0, but I don't, I don't even know if React itself is version 1.0. But it's available now. You can, you can actually get the iOS libraries and 
you can build stuff using React Native. Uh, and Android, I think is, I think the last time I looked, they they were estimating maybe three months out from now. God, things move uh, so fast now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Okay, so, so that's so that's React Native is basically the same idea as React, but for um, for the the main mobile platforms, so that you can use it from you can use the same approach, but from like a, a an application written that's native for one of those platforms. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Is that it's it's they I forget the term that they use for it, but it's this idea that you can it's not the right once run anywhere. You you have the same concepts where you you can once you've learned how to do things the React way then you can then take that knowledge and use it to target some new platform. But the, you know, the underlying uh, UI components that you're going to be dealing with will be different, but the concepts will be the same. Mm-hmm. So what this means is a whole, this, you know, whole lot of uh, React web developers will now be able to turn around and develop React Native apps by just learning perhaps a new component uh, set or a component tree that they need to deal with. So, and th- th- this this whole area of how React works and how OM works is something that I uh, have not myself learned yet. I just know enough about it that it sounds it sounds to me like the right way to do things, and that's kind of the target of where I want to go with everything. Mm-hmm. So you've you've got Gobi, and now you're figuring out how to incorporate React Native as it as it comes to light. It turns out that you can take things like OM and Reagent. And the you know the various libraries that sit on top of React for the web, and almost without any change, you can take them and use them to produce uh, React Native apps. So uh, that's that's a big deal. You know, you could, you if if you already have learned that pattern of how to build apps for the web, you you now have this new platform that's available to you. And likewise, for me, I've been focusing on mobile apps. I have no clue how to produce a web web app. <laughs> So if I if I learn the React Native way of doing it, then I theoretically, if I have a need in the future to produce a web app, I should be able to. You know, it's it's kind of like not one language to rule them all, but one pattern to rule them all. Yeah, and it occurs to me. I mean, not again, because I've said before, having spent a lot of time writing front end apps, but that the way that we do things now with single page apps is way more like what I imagine app development on a mobile device to be like than the, the old style of, you know, page, page, page with round trips to the server. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a single, it's a single view that changes as you interact with it. Right, right, yeah. but it's all running, it's not running on some server somewhere, it's running local to the user. Yep. Interesting. Okay, so I guess, so you're you're kind of at this inflection point perhaps where... Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, are you going to wait for other people to do this or you're going to... The next thing that's occurring is the the Google Summer of Code with Maria Nisa. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. But she's so specific. Okay, so technically the problem that exists right now is React Native uses uh, a module system for JavaScript called CommonJS. And so, so if you if you come from a Java background, you're used to just using jars, right, to, as it, for your dependencies. It, evidently, in the JavaScript world, I'm I'm also new to the JavaScript world. Evidently, in that world, there's no there's no good or no c- commonly accepted module system that's in use everywhere. Meaning, like if you want to depend on some library, then the question becomes, how do you package that library? How do you consume it? Mm-hmm. 
And um, Closure Script itself uses uh, Google Closure, and, and it's, it provides a way of, of dealing with dependencies. Another one that's being used by React Native is called CommonJS. Uh, Closure Script, the compiler cannot currently consume libraries that are packaged up using CommonJS. So that, that causes a fundamental problem with trying to build React Native apps today with Closure Script, uh, and that you have no real way to consume that library cleanly. Hmm. You, can, you can hack at it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have. I've, I've put together apps to show that things work. And what you can do is you can, um, you can take... Uh, React Native comes with its own packager that, that basically takes all this common JS and also JSX, which is another thing I didn't mention. It's a, a, like a dialect on top of JavaScript. But it takes all this stuff, the React Native Packager takes all this stuff and it, it emits clean JavaScript that you can then use. You can pass to your, to your uh, JavaScript engine. And what, I, what I've been able to do is take the output of that Packager and then layer things like ohm on top of that output and produce React Native apps that actually work. So it, it's kind of kludgy today. You can, you can do things that way. So the next technical thing I think that needs to be solved is this Google Summer of Code project that Marie is doing to, to basically add the ability uh, to ClojureScript to consume CommonJS style dependencies. And I think there's also other uh, styles as well, AMD or, I, I'm not familiar with what they are, but there's more than just CommonJS in that mix. Hmm. So, so that, I'm kind of waiting for that to occur, you know, because that will kind of help but the uh sorry do you know uh if we i mean i think one of the reasons for the using the google closure stuff is um because you know we we really wanted to take advantage of the compiler and because uh, of the advanced optimizations that you can do does does that is that incompatible with using something like a different uh, module system okay so i'll speculate a little bit because okay. you know i'm not really i'm not that hundred percent clear on what it's doing, but I think the answer is yeah. It's you know Google Google Closure has its own way of of basically at the JavaScript layer saying that that this library provides certain symbols or it or it requires other symbols. So it, it kind of is a module system at the bottom, and and it's different than other ones like Common JS. The way it works is it it basically puts each module into kind of a lexical closure of some sort, that, you know, to kind of protect it. And so it, it's just different. It, it, I guess the answer to your question is I, I want to say, yes, they are incompatible with each other. And, and one, one additional thing I would say along those lines is if you are trying to write code that, that you can uh, replace using a REPL, you, you know, in JavaScript, you basically can, say, define a new function at runtime. And that's that idea of, of saying, hey, here's a new function definition. Just put it into play. That's, that kind of works well with the uh, Google Closure way of dealing with dependencies because Google Closure basically takes your, your um, modules and kind of, I want to say it kind of flattens them out in, into a set of, of symbols with dots between them. You, you end up with like these namespace things that, that are in your JavaScript. And I think what's really going on there, though, is you have like a, an object tree, really, mm-hmm. in, in JavaScript. But that, that basically makes it easy to replace a function definition at runtime. Whereas if you look at, at CommonJS, it's, it's great because it packages things up and protects them in this closure. But I think that kind of impedes your ability to just replace things that are inside that closure. 
I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, closures are opaque, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's a good way of putting it. So, so part of uh, what Maria's work will lead to is it will convert the common JS stuff to, I believe, uh, Google Closure style dependencies. And and fortunately, the the underlying mechanism to do this, I think, is built into Google Closure. It's just a matter of the Closure script compiler being able to make use of it. Wow, those Google Summer of Code projects are always so impressive to me. I mean, these are generally students, right? And and they take on what to me seem like quite complex problems. Yes, I agree. Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's just it's nice that I remember when I was a student, I had a lot of free time on my hands, and and if if you know if someone were willing to just kind of say, hey, I'll pay you to do this for the summer, uh, that would be awesome. You yeah, know? absolutely. I, I would be happy to con- contribute three months of my time. To- <laughs> To solve a, a big problem, yeah. Okay, right, Russell. You, I mean, you, this is this is all very interesting. Please continue. I think the other big thing that I probably haven't talked about is Ambly. That that's the uh, the REPL that I've been working on recently. Mm. Going back to about a year ago, I guess, when I was working uh, trying to build a, an app in uh, using ClojureScript, trying to build an iOS app. I didn't have a REPL for the longest time. <laughs> I was just you know writing some ClojureScript, compiling it. Trying, you know, running it, putting in println statements if it, you know, if things fail. Yep, sounds like how I do closure script when I do it these days. Yeah, Colin Fleming pointed me in the direction of how to how to get a REPL running, and that changed my world because <laughs> then I could then I could more rapidly figure things out. And the the way that that REPL worked was based on Weasel, um, and to get that to work, sorry, it, what's Weasel? Weasel is a closure script REPL, and it differs from other REPLs in, in that it uses WebSockets to establish the connection to the JavaScript environment. I gotcha. Okay. Think about you have you have JavaScript core embedded down inside your iOS app, and you need to uh, communicate with it. Uh, so Weasel will let you do that so long as your JavaScript core supports WebSockets. By default, JavaScript core doesn't. JavaScript core is not a is not a web thing. It's basically just a plain JavaScript engine. But what you can do is you can use a web view in your iOS app, and that web view will have a JavaScript JavaScript core engine embedded inside of it, and you can you can um, connect Weasel to that, and you can use that web view essentially to, essentially to drive everything. To try to explain that more clearly, what I was doing was I would I would use a web view. Uh, in lieu of just plain JavaScript core, and I would use Weasel to to uh, establish a REPL into iOS. Gotcha. Do things that way. In order to do that, you kind of have to have this different mode that your app runs in. You have to have a web view mode, if you will. So I actually had conditional conditional compilation in iOS or in the Objective C side that would uh, use a web view if I was in debug mode, and for release, it would kind of throw all that away and just use straight JavaScript core. So, so because of that, I, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted a better REPL into iOS. And I, I also just wanted a, a JavaScript core REPL in and of itself. There was, a, I think it was around December, David Nolan produced the Node REPL. And that was kind of nice because you could just fire up a REPL and you were right in Node right away. You didn't have to do anything. Uh, and then uh, someone else produced a Nashhorn REPL. And so the, all these REPLs were being produced left and right. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I, I want to make one of those, but for JavaScript core. Uh, so I sat down and, and started working on that, trying to get one of those working. And it turned out to be pretty difficult to do 
on the desktop. I wanted to just be able to fire up a REPL right on my desktop and have it connect to JavaScript core running on my Mac. Uh, and and that, that's difficult to do due to technical reasons where the JavaScript core that, that you can run on your Mac doesn't come with anything really. It doesn't come with, I don't even think you can do file access. You couldn't really connect to it easily. You can, you can basically pass it some JavaScript and it'll run and print things out for you. So I ultimately gave up on that way of doing it. And I'm, I thought, you know, what I'll do instead is I'll, I'll try to hook into the one that's in iOS. And I'll do that by wrapping, wrapping JavaScript core with just enough Objective-C to, to basically ex, you know, accept messages over a TCP connection that could then do things in JavaScript core, get the answers, and send them back. You know, basically just a, a TCP-based REPL, if you will. Mm-hmm. I ultimately got that working, uh, and that that ultimately grew and led to Ambly. Uh, so some of the things that Ambly does now that that are beyond just a straight TCP connection is this whole remote compilation architecture that David Nolan came up with, which I think is awesome. If you basically think about it, if you're if in ClojureScript you say I want to load this namespace, the JavaScript engine ultimately has to load in some JavaScript that that represents that namespace, and if you are on an iOS device, uh, if you if you repled into that iOS device, the the code needed to the code that implements that namespace is not going to be on your iOS device. You know, you're 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 coding on your computer, and your your iOS device is essentially remote. What what you could then consider doing is you could say, well, when someone requires this namespace, I'll have the JavaScript that represents that namespace be transmitted over my TCP connection. I think that may be the way the browser repo works. And this is because the Clojure script compiler is itself written in Clojure, so it needs a JVM to execute. I guess that's part of it, but it's also just a, a pragmatic consideration that the output of the Clojure script compiler is JavaScript that's sitting on your file system on your computer. Mm-hmm. So you, so- you somehow have to fundamentally get that JavaScript into your JavaScript environment. That's, that's where David Nolan came up with this idea of saying, hey, let's, uh, let's put a web dev server on iOS so that you can point the compiler at that instead so that the output of your compiler, if you will, uh, doesn't go, no longer goes to your file system on your computer, but instead is being redirected to write to a web dev volume that's on your iOS device. Hmm. And that, that kind of simplifies a lot of things. Then when you require a namespace, the JavaScript that implements that namespace is already on your device just by virtue of taking that approach. And it makes it easier just... So, so that's, that's fundamentally the, the way uh, that if you had to say what's special about Ambly versus the older way that I was doing it with Weasel, is that, that all the, this, this whole remote compilation architecture is in place where stuff goes to the device, it's there to be uh, included, uh, all, all the metadata, like the, the source mapping is all built into that and that way of doing it. And oh, one more cool thing that, that we got for free out of this was the, the, uh, the web dev library that we used to implement that came with a Bonjour um, implementation, which means that you can use it to advertise things. You can advertise where you are. So that kind of made it really, really simple to, to have the iOS device just come up and say, hey, I'm here, and then the REPL can hear that advertisement, if you will, hmm. and it, inside that advertisement are the details, like what, which IP address to connect to and which port to connect to, um, things like that. 
Hmm. Uh, so, so that was kind of a, an extra little icing on the cake was that whole Bonjour auto discovery thing, which makes it easier just to say, hey, I want to connect to my iOS device. Then you fire up the REPL and you can essentially listen using Bonjour uh, and discover things and then connect automatically, if you will. Wow. <laughs> You've been busy. <laughs> I, I apologize if I've been going through this too fast. No, 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 no. No, I think it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm able to follow it. There, there's a lot there because you've been doing a lot, but you're making it make sense to me. So uh, that's very cool. I mean, and especially given that I don't spend a lot of time in this space, there's a lot of interesting, interesting tech I haven't heard of. So let me see. We were kind of going through and figuring out. I mean, kind of chronologically, it was sort of this point in the story where it's like, okay, React Native is coming around, there's common JS integration or conversion happening. We were kind of talking about what the future of, of the iOS space, at least from where you sit uh, in, uh, as a person who wants to use uh, Clojure and ClojureScript works. Did we, did we cover the bases there or is there more kind of on the horizon yeah, that I we didn't touch on? That's, that's rough. If you said, what is the future? I think that's, there's not much more than that. I don't have anything up my sleeve. Well, I mean, some, most uh, you know, of the stuff you've talked yeah. about has happened over the last six months. Yeah. <laughs> so I imagine if we have have you come back on in another six months, there would be a boatload more interesting things to do. And so I think we will definitely have to do that. I think one other thing I might mention, um, in the meanwhile, one thing I kind of put together was this Baco thing. Baco, okay. Yeah, so you know, my kids are... Um, they're, they're kind of, like we talked earlier, they're, they're getting into Scratch and whatnot. And fundamentally, I, I kind of think that Clojure itself, to me, is simpler in, in ways, that, in, in some ways, than some of these other languages. You know, like, like I could see sitting, sitting down at a REPL with my kids and teaching them, them how to do some basic things, like how to add or how to, you know, how to make a, a vector, right? Because mm-hmm. some, some of those concepts are so simple. So what I, wanted, what I wanted to do was make something like that where I could get my kids to, to play around at the REPL, but, I, but you need that graphical enticement. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're basically competing with things like Minecraft and, and Scratch. Right, yeah. And, and here you're, you're, you're telling your kids, hey, do this textual thing. You'll like it, you know, it and trying to convince them that it's fun. So, what, so my, one of my... Fondest memories early on using those old basic computers like Apple IIs and Commodores was that you'd flip them on and they would have basic in their ROM, right? And they would be up and running. And then you could pretty easily, most of those environments had some graphical thing that came with them where you could plot, you know, plot some, some colorful blocks on a screen. Yes, 80 by uh, 24. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yep. So that, that exactly is what Baco is. It's it's basically that idea for um, for closure, if cool. you will. You know, so so I, I think I kind of halfway succeeded. I got my daughter to use that for a while, and she was like plotting on the screen and 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 learning a little bit of closure at the same time because that's what you're using to do it with. And uh, ultimately, though, she's she's now back in the scratch world. <laughs> but it was it was fun trying that. And one one cool thing that kind of happened with Baco was once I once I had written it for closure. I said, hey, I could take this stuff because CLJC had just come out. And the underlying code for Baco is very, very simple. Uh, at least the parts that don't involve drawing to the screen uh, are, are platform independent. Uh, and, and they could have just as well been in, in ClojureScript. So I took the, the idea of, of CLJC and I started porting Baco to, to iOS and, and, and different uh, ClojureScript environments, to the browser and whatnot. 
So that that was kind of a just a fun thing to do. So that's that's kind of the stuff that I've been doing in my in my free time while I'm waiting for React Native to become a real thing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> cool, very cool. Well, uh, that, that's neat. And so is that is that like an open source thing? Other people can check it out somewhere yes, on your yep, GitHub page that's on GitHub as well. Yeah, cool. Well, we'll put links to that all that in the uh, in the show notes. Of course, people can get it there. So we're coming up on an hour here, which usually means that we try to uh, start wrapping it up. But uh, <laughs> Mike, you've had so many cool things to talk about. I don't want to limit you to the ones we've already talked about. Is there anything else you want to mention to our listeners before we before we close it down? No, I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, like I said, you've obviously been hard at work. Uh, you know, every time I talk to you at one of the user group meetings, you've uh, you've got more cool things you've been trying out, and so we'll have have to have you back on and uh, check in with you again and see where all this has gotten to and. Uh, find out what your read of the of the environment has been over the last well, however long it's been. So it'd be really cool to have you back. But well, thanks a lot for coming yeah, on. This, this stuff fascinates me. So it's not going away anytime soon, at least for me. You know, I'll still be digging into it a year from now. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Because uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to some degree, I do it uh, for work, but my focus is always on the back end. So it's really fun to hear f- from someone who's uh, immersed themselves in this and uh, and is learning about it. Um, but of course we do have one more question to ask you before we close it down, which is, uh, the matter of advice. Uh, so we asked oh, our, okay. our yeah. guests yeah. about advice that they would like to give to people or advice that they've received or just, you know, advice. Like, what do you, you know, want to share? I think everybody has a little bit that they like to, uh, comment on. So what do you got for us? Yeah. So, so I, a while ago I started getting into math for some reason. I think there was a project that I was working on where, uh, I, I felt like some aspect of what I was working on was true, but I couldn't prove it. You know, and it, it kind of bugged me that I couldn't prove the, the, a theorem, essentially, based on what I was working on. So I, I went off on this tangent and started learning the fundamentals of, of math, you know, like set theory and, and predicate calculus, little, you know, the, the bottom of math, if you will. And, and I started to, to find out that I really enjoyed learning that stuff, but I also learned that I I was not really good at it. Um, I, you know, I, it just, I, I had always thought that I was pretty good at math, but then you can always find something, right? You can dig deeper and you'll find something that, that will really challenge you. Yes. So uh, I'm like, this is not like just linear algebra and whatnot. This is like hardcore lower level concepts. So the advice I would have is if you, if you think you want to do something, don't, don't prevent yourself from doing it just because you don't think you're good at it. And, and, you know, don't judge yourself and, and th- therefore preclude yourself from, from trying something. Go ahead and do it just because you enjoy it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of me with math. I, I'll, I'll dig into this stuff and I'll, I'll, I'll completely enjoy it, but I'll know that I'm, I'm nowhere near as good at it as, there are, as other people, right? <laughs> There's mm-hmm. always someone who's better. So that's, that's my advice is if, if you enjoy something, do it for that reason alone. Don't, don't. Don't try to do it just because you think you offer something that, that you know, that, that don't judge yourself, right? Cool. <laughs> just, just do something because you enjoy it. Very good advice. I th- certainly think if your criteria for enjoying something is that you have to be the best at it, well, then you will, you will spend fail. a lot yeah. more time disappointed than you will happy. Exactly, yeah. So that's good advice. Well, cool. So thanks so much for coming on the show today, Mike. It's been really Thank great you to back, have yeah. you. No, it's, it's always fun to talk to you at the user groups and... Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I believe it was actually Kim that suggested uh, that you come on the show. She had seen some of your work. And I'm like, oh, that's right. He was talking about that. I think that's a great idea. Mike's a nice guy, and I'm sure he'd be interesting. And, and we were right, so we're, we're glad that you could make it. So uh, cool. thanks a ton. Um, but we will close it down there. I think we'll, we'll definitely have you back on. But for now, we will close the show. We will say 
Thanks again to Mike, and thanks to our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Mike Fikes on Twitter at mfikes, M-F-I-K-E-S. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.